Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Hello, everybody. This is an exciting episode. It's our final episode in our Freedoms at Stake election series. We're going to start with just the two co-hosts, me and New Deal CEO, Debbie Cox Bolton, to talk about Tuesday's elections results. I should note that we are talking at Thursday at noon Pacific, so there are still some outstanding races that have yet to be called, but so far, so good. As I was saying to Debbie before we got started recording, I was not looking forward to this conversation for the last week. I thought it was going to be me and Debbie crying openly in in podcasts, uh, live on a podcast. But it's turned out to be a pretty good night for Democrats and especially for New Deal leaders who are, as always, continuing to lead and innovate and show us the way in these difficult times. So I'm going to start by talking to Debbie because she's been front and center at supporting these candidates, monitoring these elections, helping set the course for not only New Deal leaders, but the Democratic Party as a whole. And Debbie, are you as relieved and borderline hopeful and happy as I am? Well, I will give you the answer. I also said to you off air already, but which is I never thought I'd be so happy knowing we still might lose the House of Representatives. (laughs) It's such a weird place to be in, right? But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that like you, it's just a huge sigh of relief that we were able to buck the historical trends that have often gone against, you know, the party in power, as well as really late polls saying, you know, showing that there might be this really big red wave. It's it's particularly gratifying just because I feel like to the point of our named podcast, Freedoms at Stake, honestly, like there was so much, so much at stake in this election in terms of what we think about our democracy as Americans, what we think about choice. And there's just was a lot. And I'm just really, really relieved that, you know, kind of restored my faith a little bit in the American people that they that they can reject extremism so handedly. Absolutely. And we saw some new dealers prevail over really, really dangerous extreme candidates. Can you talk a little bit about some of the new deal, some of the new dealers who are now taking a national profile or having or won big, big races that, that we're so excited about? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm happy to. And I, and I guess, you know, even before I do that, Ryan, if it's okay, I, mean, I also just want to say I am excited about a bunch of the new dealers who won. But I think an underreported story so far, of course, you mentioned when we're talking, we're still everyone's just trying to figure out what happened. But, you know, what's going to become even more evident to people is as relieved as we are on the federal level and as well as we did in terms of holding on to some seats that were really vulnerable at the federal level and hopefully knock on wood holding on to the Senate. We did so well at the state and local level. We are going to pick up seats, I think, in a pretty big way at the state legislative level, period, which is crazy in the, given the headwinds that I was talking about earlier. So I really think that some of this really showed itself in the state and local level, even more than it did on the federal level, which is what has everybody so relieved, right? So I think there's going to be a lot to unpack about that going forward. And I should just note on this podcast, we are going to have some folks that are be joining us shortly who will be an- analyzing and talking about some of the state level victories, which you're right, is so important for maintaining democracy and getting good initiatives implemented in communities and creating a bench really for the Democratic Party for the future. It, it's scary when you start to lose at the state and local level because it's it's not only losing now, but it's losing your good candidates well into the future. And so we have three exciting guests that we'll be talking about all those issues. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just to, to say something that Jessica Post said for people who listen to that episode of our of our election series, you know, she was talking about not just the short term thinking about state legislative races, but the long term thinking and particularly redistricting. Right. I mean, so, you know, which is this perpetual cycle of, you know, you don't win the state legislative races, you get bad redistricting, you can't win state legislative. So it's really important, you know, at all levels, which I'll talk about in a second, but in particularly the state legislative. So excited that they're going to come back to talk about that. But on the New Deal front, yeah, I mean, so, you know, just the marquee of course, um, you know, going kind of top of the ticket down. Super excited about Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, who won his race for governor against a pretty well-known, not just as, as as you said, you know, election denier, but, you know, but somebody who was actively involved in January 6th. <laughs> and so, and won by a pretty big margin. And so that was, you know, and probably frankly helped pull Fetterman over the edge to yeah. over the top too. So I'm super excited about that. And I'm excited about it one, just because, again, it gives me some faith in Pennsylvanians about, you know, seeing through people who just were not fit to be in office, right, to be honest, but also as a, uh, a little, you know, as, as somebody who ran on, you know, just a campaign that was a smart, he's a mainstream Democrat, cared about tip and kitchen table issues, talked a lot about making sure that working families had what they needed, you know, just was, you know, this was a, this was a playbook election that I think we can learn from going forward in, in Pennsylvania. So I'm super excited about uh, Governor-elect Shapiro. And then I think another thing I would just point up, want to point out again, go, hearkening back to another episode we did on this podcast about secretaries of states and how important secretaries of state and how important they are. We have uh, three New Deal leaders running and secretaries of state races, Steve Syme, all against pretty crazy election deniers, um, really crazy election deniers. So Steve Simon in Minnesota won, Jocelyn Benson in Michigan won, and then Adrian Fontes, who is running in Arizona, a state that, as you noted, we are still watching tonight, but he's up, I think, by about four points at time of podcast. So I'm really hopeful that he'll pull that out because I just think, again, it shows that people don't want to go back to uncertainty about the fundamentals of our democracy, right? I mean, that there, you know, we have a system that works well and just rejecting that kind of extremism was super heartening to me. You know, on the democracy thing, I want to say one other thing if I can, Ryan, which is I'm also was kind of surprised by and super happy about. I, I was, I think I was girded for chaos on election night just because of all of the craziness that happened on January 6th and since and all the rhetoric and the armed people at drop boxes we were hearing going into the election. And I have to say, knock on wood, you know, so far it's been a pretty mel, you know, pretty calm election cycle, which I hope again, and I think that this repudiation of those types of people spewing those that type of rhetoric, again, we're we're still waiting on the you know, governor's race in Arizona and a couple others that, you know, that will be not in this trend, but, you know, across the board, the races that have been called, those folks have lost these elections, high profile elections for governor and secretaries of state. So that's been super exciting. And then the only thing, other thing I'd say just on New Deal, we had, we had, we had a lot of people wins, I think 85% or so far run, run re-election, dozens of people across the country, but just would flag that we do have four headed to Congress, which is super exciting. So Val Hoyle in Oregon, Brittany Pedersen in Colorado, Seth Magaziner, who won a race that people were worried about going into in Rhode Island. Super happy to see him pull that out. And then Robert Garcia here in our home state of California. I think that there's one other Adam Gray that we're still waiting on final results from, but always fun to see new dealers going from rising up the ranks and, and heading to Congress as well. Yeah. And I think we can absolutely credit their appearances on an honorable profession to their success. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Where uh, we identified them early before you knew all those names, and you will learn a lot more about what remarkable leaders these are. We had them here on this podcast, and you could hear them as they were building their their political and policy chops at the local and state level before they moved up to the federal level. So I agree. It is an exciting time. All the more reason to listen all year so you get to know the 24 candidates well before they're running. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit because I think you have been, you sort of wrote, you outlined a playbook really for this election for candidates on focusing on those kitchen table issues and mobilizing and pushing back against extremists. It proved successful. And I want you to hear, you know, it's again with the caveats that we're still waiting on a couple races, but it proved a successful model. And what you think 
and you hope the party learns going into the next one in 2024. We take one quick deep breath and then it all starts over again. What what do you see as the lessons learned and the approach that should be taken in 2024? Yeah. Well, first of all, you said that sentence you just said made me literally take a deep breath <laughs> because it's like hard to get your head around, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I, I did have a, an op-ed early on of a kind of a, the recipe for Democrats, which you know pointed out a couple of things. One is we had to be, and, and we were, but this is something we need to even get better at in the future, is be relentless about our accomplishments, right? I mean, I was frustrated, to, truth be told, early on by, you know, the kind of running against ourselves that we were doing for a while there. And the this is a administration at the national level that did some really amazing things from the American Rescue Plan to the bipartisan infrastructure deal, guns, chips, you know, lots of things to point to the, the Inflation Reduction Act. And it felt like we were running away from, from the the work that had been done and and fighting amongst ourselves about like, well, was it enough or, you know, just kind of crazy, right? Like, so, so I think that that was a, a big thing I said is we just have to, and, and it was important to recognize that most people aren't paying attention, right? And, you know, another thing I said in that our friends over at Third Way had done a poll, like maybe a couple months ago, where like, don't quote me on the number, but you know, twenty percent of people had even realized that the bipartisan infrastructure deal had passed. And so, to me, that was just a really stark reminder of that. You know, a lot of people don't do this for a living every day, nor should they. It's a representative democracy, so we have to just remind people about our accomplishments. And I think that that held, holds true on the state and local level as well. I mean, you know, we've been touting a lot of what New Deal leaders have been doing with a lot of the federal money coming to them and things like childcare and broadband uh, expansion and addressing some of these longstanding inequities in their cities and states that are were so exasperated by the pandemic. And so, you know, there's a lot of good stories to tell. I guess that's the point. And so, you know, just to be relentless about telling those stories. And I think that that's, that's something we have to do going forward. And even more specifically, if there's a, a vulnerability that I think I felt like came out of this election, it was, I think, the polls that we saw late into the election about how Democrat, how people feel about Democrats in the economy really frustrate me and really make me sad, frankly, because actually I think empirically speaking, Democrats over the last 40, 50 years actually have done a much better job as stewards of the economy. And so I think we've got to tell that story relentlessly. You know, we we won in part this time because we had better candidates. We ran mainstream candidates against extreme candidates, but we can't, we should be winning also on the strength of our what we've delivered and the strength of our messages to working families. And so um, I think that's something that, you know, I'm going to learn going forward. And I hope that the party learns going forward is just, you know, we have to make that the centerpiece of our messaging and we have to tout all the good things that Democrats are doing for working families across the country. You know, I couldn't agree more. And just speaking personally, the New Deal reaches out to me every three months or so. It says, tell us how you're spending those federal dollars. And you know, when the dollars came in, we passed a bunch of policies to do exactly what you said, right? To support working families, support small businesses, extend broadband, make some big investments in infrastructure in our county. And then you sort of forget. And the New Deal kept coming back and saying, well, how's that going? And I go back and check. And sure enough, like we were doing it. And thousands of people were now having access to broadband that they didn't have access before, which creates educational opportunities and economic opportunities. Kids weren't after school programs, catching up from the socialization they lost and the education they lost during the pandemic. And it's really essential for everybody who's worried about their communities to go back and, and look at those investments. One, make sure they're, they're doing what you thought they would do, but then tell that story because it's sort of, you know, it gets eaten up in the chaos of the news cycle. But New Deal's played a really important role in reminding all of us to check talk about and celebrate these major sort of once in a generation investments by the federal government in creating more thriving, equitable communities. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it really, the, the, the stories are amazing. I mean, really the, the, the amount of people that have been touched, the, the amount of families have been helped is, is, is really important. I mean, I guess I want to say one other thing too, right. I'd be curious about your thoughts on this, but one of the things I wrote about in that op-ed is you know, it was the cultural wedge issues, which I think we listen, everybody who listened to DeSantis's speech realizes are not going away anytime soon. And, you know, we talked on this podcast 
a while ago with Mallory, Mallory McMurrow, who's from Michigan, who went viral, as people might remember, with a floor speech. Um, she did pushing back on some really ugly charges that were leveled against her in this kind of anti-woke frame, you know, kind of frame of, you know, that she, about being a groomer of whatever, because, you know, she, it was just crazy stuff. So anyway, and, and, and what we talked about was, you know, her effective use of pushing back and telling her own authentic story about that's crazy. Anyone who knows me knows that's crazy. And this is why, and, and making sure that um, Democrats aren't silent on these issues. I think sometimes we feel like they're so obviously stupid, frankly, that it are so, you know, that it's like, oh, we roll our eyes and just like, like, that's crazy. No one's going to believe that. Unanswered, it's, you know, we don't know what people are going to believe. And so I think, you know, being really willing to to stand up against against that and to push back, I think is is super important. And at the same time, kind of recognizing particularly for those swing and independent voters, that some of the questions that are being leveled are fair questions and that we actually should be careful about kind of coming across as too dismissive of people who have legitimate questions that we think are just because they're Fox talking points, right? So essentially for, for you know, just to take a couple examples, like on, on democracy, when we're talking about democracy, right? People who are asking about the integrity of the elections, the security of their ballots, rather than talking only about access, that's a fair question that we should be able to answer as Democrats, right? Of like, you know, absolutely. This is, you know, we want every eligible voter to vote. We want to make it as easy as possible for every eligible voter to vote. And by the way, there is a process in place to track election ballots to make sure that there's no fraud, right? You know what I mean? Or whether it's on, you know, education and the whole critical race theory, while much of it is just BS, for some people, there's a there's a, a fair question in, in the thread in there about, what's the appropriate role of parents in their kids' schools, right? And so to be able to talk about that without dismissing them as, oh, they're not with us, so they must be against us, I think is going to be a really important lesson that we learn, we have to learn going forward if we're going to build a a coalition that can uh, be a majority. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think one of the lessons from this is that voters can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? Like they they can worry about gas prices or inflation or that they're seeing in the supermarket. And they can also worry about choice and they can have questions about what kind of society they want to live in. And as elected officials, it's sort of our job to recognize all that. And I think the media and Twitter, the Twitterverse and everything else has this desire to simplify things into these very narrow narratives and A-B choices. And the reality is that people are complex. The world is complex. Communities are complex. And that the candidates that we saw that sort of took voters seriously and talked to them were by and large rewarded, right? And I think that is, it's often seen as a weakness for Democrats that we aren't always just sticking to as one talking point. But I think this time we were, we were rewarded for meeting voters where they are, talking about these issues. And the voters recognize that like there aren't easy choices and things are hard and And so I think hopefully we will continue that going forward because not only is it obviously good for elections, but it's also frankly good for us all (laughs) living less stressful, conflict-filled lives where we can have real conversations about policy issues and recognize the complexity in them. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that, Ryan. And I, you know, one of the other interesting things that I I wonder, I hope will be kind of studied more coming out of this election is just by the numbers. Some people were going to have had to have split tickets, right? Which is something that I find shocking as a political professional in this day and age and so delightfully wonderful <laughs> because <laughs> we, we think that it's like, no, we're, we, we, you know, the, all the narratives that we're, we've picked our team and, you know, and I'm sure there was less, you know, now than there used to be in the past, but that's a super interesting question to me of, of, you know, of people or even the dissonance. And we'll talk about this with a guest soon, but, you know, dissonance that some people might think between reelecting Rand Paul and beating back a Kentucky ban on abortion, right? That that, you know, to your point, I think people can chew gum, people are complex, people can can talk and chew gum at the same time. And I, I'm really interested to see if we can learn how to, to get back to an idea where we have to go out and reach out to voters and not just talk about turning on our base voters and us versus them. You know, that 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 to me is what makes a functioning democracy work is that kind of Commute sense of community and that we're all in this together and that you can reach across the aisle and and bring in people 
you know, I mean, there was a lot of room this time, obviously, the Republicans went with far right candidates, right? And so, you know, and Democrats did not nominate our far left in a lot of those primaries. So I think that that's a lesson too. But they're clearly right now, because we have one party that's really gone ahead and gone all in on extremism, like how do we build a majority that is, you know, that is from the, I don't know, shred browns of the world to, you know, to the list chains of the world potentially or whatever it is, but there's just, a, there's room, right. To, um, to, to grow a pretty good majority of people who, who, who share, who share some common values when it comes to democracy and freedom and opportunity and other things. I couldn't agree more. And just for our listeners, we are going to be talking to Heather Williams is the executive director of the democratic leadership Congressional Committee about state legislative races and what 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 happened there. We will then hear from a New Dealer Kentucky representative, Nima Kokani, about the defeating the Kentucky abortion ban. At least I was surprised that Kansas and Kentucky are leading the way on choice. And I think there's a there's a lesson in there for all of us. And then a former New Dealer and a friend of ours, Michigan, former ha- Michigan House Majority Leader, floor leader, Steve to Bachman is going to talk about the unbelievable win that we saw in Michigan and why it's a model for the rest of the country. So stick with us. We got three smart people coming on to dissect what we've seen and give you a little hope for the future. We are so happy to be joined today by Heather Williams from the DLCC, Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. For those of you who do not know that, hopefully you listened to our earlier podcast with Jessica Post, their president, before the election, talking about what we should be watching and, and how important what happened at the state legislative level was going to be. And as you know, we've been talking about today already, the surprise for many of us of what happened, the pleasant surprise of what happened at the, at the election night, which most people were paying attention at the federal level was even maybe more exciting to talk about what happened at this at the I mean at the federal level what happened at the state legislative level so we're really grateful to Heather to come on and just kind of give us a little rundown of some of the amazing bright spots that happened and flipping some chambers and holding off some super majorities in some, some key states and I'll just start by saying thank you Heather and your whole team because I know how much work the DLCC put into some of the victories we're going to hear about so thanks for joining us and tell us what happened at the state legislative level on Tuesday night Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Like, so proud of this team. So proud of our legislators and our leaders around the country who are doing the hardest work, right, in the world. But we are very, very happy with the results of Tuesday. I think in general, Democrats have a lot of reason to be happy. But sort of as you alluded, you know, we land in a place where we really have the best results in the Democratic Party. We feel really, really good about that. We set out this year, you know, with this path to the majority strategy, which really approached this year to protect our majorities, to ensure that we were, you know, making grounds and and working towards flipping majorities where Republicans were vulnerable. And then, you know, building power in key states that mattered for the long run. And we literally did just that. We did it all, which is I think more to us, like the the more surprising thing, like you rarely ever achieve all the things. And that is that is what happened. But, you know, this wasn't a surprise in the sense that we were working towards it. You know, it's hard to buck historical trends. I think, you know, being able to achieve all the things maybe is is a slight surprise. But the fact that we were working towards it and, and really doing everything to get there, we had a really strong strategy. We executed it really, really well. And that is how we got here. Yeah. I'll let Ryan hop in. But one of the things I just wanted to underscore was, you know, how I think that there was finally an awareness, never enough, but, you know, of how important state legislative chambers were going to be. And, you know, and so I was just, you know, somebody who also has been working at the state and local level for so long, it was so delighted that finally there was a little bit of the recognition that has been needed and the investment that's been needed to at the state legislative level. Of course, a long way to go to go to going forward. But before I let Ryan ask a follow-up question, can you just kind of walk us through some of the specifics of this of the states that you were particularly watching and that you were so happy to see the results in that you got? Yeah, we knew um sort of in the strategy, right, that we needed to protect the majorities that we had. Presidential midterm, right? Wins against our back or headwinds, I guess you should say, and knowing that we had to, you know, really focus on that. So, you know, we had key holds in places like Colorado and Maine, and then Republicans, you know, thought that this was their year. So they expanded the map to include, you know, like Oregon and dabbled in New Mexico. You know, we held them everywhere. 
And then when we looked at these vulnerable Republican majorities, um, you know, we were really looking at Michigan, both chambers in Minnesota. We picked up all of them. And then, you know, in places that we wanted to make progress, you know, there's still votes being counted in really important process. Like we want to see it to the end. But, you know, when we look at places like Pennsylvania, Arizona, even Georgia, where the state results, um, we had progress, right? Like we picked up seats in all those places. Really good news. Yeah, fantastic. And a couple super majorities that got held off in, I think, North Carolina and Wisconsin, right, which could have been disastrous for. (laughs) for Yes, veto protection, right, for Democratic governors and states that desperately need it. Really, really important. And then I think one that like is not necessarily probably on everyone's radar is building some super majorities in Vermont where there's a Republican governor. So just kind of thinking about, right, like the power of Democratic legislators around the country. That's one that's, you know, a little less attended to. The stakes are a little bit different than like in North Carolina, but also, you know, something to note. Absolutely. And can you tell us these wins were huge? And like, so on the ground, what are the policy implications of these wins for, for people in the country? And then also, how does this create a political infrastructure for 2024 and going forward? Yeah, you know, the work at the states is so incredibly important. I think, you know, Debbie, you kind of alluded to this, but, you know, the Dobb decisions, I think, for a lot of folks, like, showed that. It showed the connection to choice, um, reproductive choice in the states. But the truth is, like, it's not only that issue. The states impact people's lives so directly, so often, and it's so local. And so, you know, we know that we've got really strong leaders who are going to do really good things for their communities. We know that they're going to focus on the things that matter most. You know, we know that they're going to lead, you know, through a lens of inclusiveness and justice and make sure that folks have access to the kinds of of healthcare, to the kinds of services that they need. This attention that is like starting on our ballot level is critically important and we need to build it. We need to build it within this party. You know, we really did this on our own this election. And I think, you know, when you step back for just one second and think of what it would have meant for us to have even half the resources of the D-trip, how much we could have done with that and how directly people's lives could have been impacted and changed, the federal government is not going to be able to protect Roe, right? Or enshrine Roe, right? Like we're, we're in the States. So this work became even more important. And there's a lot of really great leaders going to do really great things for their communities. And we're really excited about it. Can you tell us, I mean, I think a lot of us have felt like the Republicans have been better at, you know, starting with school boards and city councils and then legislatures and really methodically going after those seats. Do you think there's a growing awareness within the Democratic Party of the importance of investing in state and local emerging leaders and creating majorities and supporting candidates? Yeah, I think that there is a movement in that direction. It's not at all where it needs to be, right? And and frankly, it's not at the pace that it should be. I think that there is such a deep desire for the federal government to solve all the problems, and that is just not going to happen, right? And so... We need to continue to ensure, right, that like these, this ballot level, these leaders, this work gets the attention and the resourcing that it needs. You're right. Republicans have been focused and dedicated to this, you know, for a long time. Some of us lived through the results of 2010, right, and saw the implications of their direct engagement and and strategic, like rallying around this ballot level. You know, they had all of those advantages that they built in for this last decade, and we are fighting them left and right. They have more resources. They have the rallying of their, you know, national party um, who's really understanding the implications of power and how power is for them, like entrenched, right? Like in and through state legislatures. And so we've got to fight that. I think there is progress, like I said, being made here, but we need more attention, more resources. And I think just overall, like more integration of the states into the larger party. Can I ask maybe one last question just about kind of to build on that is, you know, as we think ahead, I know when Jess was here, we talked a little bit about the, you know, thinking about long-term up until 20. 30 on redistricting, of course. So, you know, this was a huge 
step forward, really just to make sure that we're going to have fair lines. This isn't about gaming the system. This is about just making sure that we the Democrats can run in fair districts and have a you know a chance to represent their their constituents. So, any thoughts, kind of early thoughts you have on how the map moved on that front with with this week? Yeah, you know, building majorities takes time. It's certainly sometimes, right? Like you can get them in a, in a cycle or in one election, but the truth is, is you've got to build and, and maintain them. And so we set out in our strategy, right, to go after those sort of immediately vulnerable ones. We have picked a number of them up, right, in Michigan, both chambers in Minnesota. We have, at this point, counting still happening, but made real progress in Pennsylvania and Arizona and have secured all of the majorities that we came into this election with. And so we sit in a really strong position as we head into you sort of short short term a presidential mid presidential election right and then long term as we build for this decade you know these elections in some of these state senates are staggered and so we sit in a really strong position as we tackle the long term goals putting you know democrats in a position of power as we head into the next decade kind of close out this this one and head into redistricting. And I think that there is, you know, a lot of work to be done this decade with the power that we do have to ensure that we've got a process that makes districts and maps representative so that voters, right, like are able to choose who represents them at any given time. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you, Heather. I'll let Brian, looks like he wants to say thank you. I'm gonna let him say thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to thank you. I mean, obviously for coming on the podcast, but more importantly to you and your team and the work you did to get the resources down to the state level, which at the end of the day, as you said, means that there's meaningful and important policies being enacted that help communities. And so we all get to take a deep breath and we'll go right into 2024. But but I want to thank you and your team who I think, and hopefully there'll be a bigger and broader support for supporting state and local candidates across from across the country. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for this platform and what you all are doing. It's great. And I I couldn't be more proud of this team and more proud to be a part of this team. They are second to none. These leaders in the States are second to none. They are so inspiring and they are going to do so good as they roll into their sessions this coming year. So thank you. It feels good to be in this position right now. (laughs) <laughs> so it's so much, a, such a happier conversation than we feared, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Now we're thrilled to be joined by Steve DeBachman. He's the former House Majority Leader in the state of Michigan. and uh, excited to hear from him about the results, uh, bright spot that Michigan was on Tuesday night. All right, Steve DeBachman, welcome to an honorable profession. Hey, thanks for having me, Debbie and Ryan. It's so nice to see you on this post-election episode and just wanted to just dive in here as we've been talking about what a better than expected night we had across the board, wanted to ask you about Michigan, which was a particular bright spot, as people may or may not know, flipping both houses of the legislature, holding on to three Democratic constitutional officers at the top who were all running against election deniers. What happened? And, and then maybe we can find out why that happened and what we should learn from it. Yeah. So 2020 was a, 2022 was a blue wave in Michigan, no doubt about it. Uh, not only is the football team eight no, but the maize and blue of, of of the University of Michigan, but across the board, Democrats just had an incredible night, outperformed projections, and frankly, that is a reflection of what also happened in 2020, where we swept three Democratic women into office in flipping the governor's office, the secretary of state office, and the attorney general in 2020. What we see in 2022 is flipping a congressional seat. And absolutely, for the first time in 40 years, Democrats have taken over the Michigan Senate and will control both chambers of the legislature. The House has been mostly Republican over those 40 years, although it's gone back and forth. They flipped the House as well. So just an incredible night for Democrats. And do you have, I'll let Ryan get a question in next, but do just kind of a top line, like if anybody said, what the heck happened? How did that happen? What's your top line thought on that? Yeah, it's a little early to, to say with confidence, but it does seem that huge turnout powered by youth vote and women. And I will say rather selfishly, because 
we changed our voting rules in 2018 to allow same-day registration to really enhance early voting and absentee, no reason absentee voting. And I think that has really empowered a Democratic blue wave. We have a really competent Democratic Party chair in Lavora Barnes. We've had great candidates. And frankly, I think just like other places, the kind of election denierism and then clearly choice, which we are in a unique situation where the current statute after the Dobbs decision, the the law in the books was a 1931 law that prohibited any abortions except for in the case of life or death for the for the mother. So even you know early term abortions, rape and incest not covered. So there was a constitutional citizen led constitutional amendment on the on the ballot that really helped women come to the polls and help general voters realize that you know Democrats are are really just the much more sane party and that there's something frankly, I would say, odd and un-American going on on the Republican side. Yeah, I guess, see, that's my follow-up question is the elected officials I know in Michigan are uniquely and talented, really thoughtful national leaders, but you have a Republican party that has sort of gone off the deep end. Do you have a sense as to how much of it with the, the much-valued swing voters was endorsement of the Democrats or a rejection of the Republicans? Well, the Democrats have been running on very uh, kitchen table issues. So fix the damn roads was our gov- what swept our governor into office. Her next biggest initiative is a workforce development, 60 by 30, and which is to get 60% of the Michigan workforce with a post-secondary degree or credential by 2030. So they're running on really, you know, kitchen table bread and butter issues. There's a lot of stuff to repeal. You know, we became a right to work state. We started taxing senior pensions, um, all kinds of things over the reign of Republican rule that I think Democrats will be well positioned to put back into their historic kind of consumerism and and really speak to the middle class relatively easy. But, you know, these issues, not only do you, particularly at the top of the slate nominated by the party, right, we had just an absolute, really a nut running for attorney general and secretary of state. These are election deniers. These are people who not, don't only deny the election, but frankly, engaged in activities to support January 6th to steal voting machines on their own, to kind of test out their conspiracy theories, to filing frivolous lawsuits. I don't know how much the public really understood because it's so crazy. It's almost hard to to follow all the shenanigans that some of these folks at the top of the ticket, you know, were engaged in. But I do think it was undergirded by right people with rifles showing up in the gallery of the state legislature and a convicted you know conspiracy of criminals trying to kidnap the governor when those things are going on in the backdrop it doesn't seem like oh these are just some whiny liberals you know complaining about trumpism and it's 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 one half of one and you know six of the other and that there's e- equivalency between progressives and conservatives it really seems like something in Michigan that the fringe ends of the Republican Party have really grabbed the party and have are powering the the election. Yeah, it's been it's been insane to watch from a distance. I can't imagine what it's like to see it up close. I want to ask one other question, which was, you know, these things don't happen by accident and getting good candidates to run first for a school board or for city council and then for the state legislature and then for statewide office. Can you talk about the efforts to recruit good people to run for office and win these seats? Well, we're yeah, I mean, we've had a team for a long time with severe term limits, which frankly just got tweaked a little bit. It'll be a little more, the average legislator will probably serve a little bit longer by being able to concentrate one chamber or the other. But we've had to replenish the team quite a bit. We had six-year lifetime term limits in the House, eight years lifetime in the Senate. And that's not like take a session off and come back. That's like lifetime. And so you can imagine the amount of recruitment that has to happen in Michigan. And there have been a number of folks that have been active to do that. We've also run really good ground campaigns. And that goes back to the time that I was in the House. And we flipped a large Republican majority into a a Democratic majority uh, and built on that majority at a time where, frankly, Democrats weren't doing as well on the top of the ballot in Michigan during Granholm's years. But just really good sort of blocking and tackling and grassroots campaigning was really the difference. And I think we have a legacy of that kind of work and so have a campaign team uh, across the state that is second to none. And I think that's really helped Democrats in Michigan. 
Maybe can I ask a, a final question, which is just, you know, this is super helpful and, and it, it almost feels like a microcosm of what happened on the national stage, but was just supercharged in Michigan, really. But I mean, I think eyes will be on Michigan as a case study going forward on on what Democrats should be to do to be successful. Any kind of lessons you tease out from what you just said for national Democrats on how to think about running in 24? Yeah, I, I mean, in eight minutes, we didn't get to touch on all of it. But First of all, again, in 2018, the most sweeping statewide voting rights, constitutional amendment anywhere in the country, totally changing our state, allowing same-day registration, allowing early voting. We just passed another one in 2022 to expand early voting options, drop boxes, protect military votes. Those are really critical things for Democrats to support, and they're things that are wildly popular. Secondly, we moved to a nonpartisan redistricting commission. For decades, we've been out of power in the Senate for four decades. And frankly, many of those elections, we won more votes for the Senate as a party than the Republicans did, but yet saw almost veto-proof majorities by the Republicans because they controlled the line drawing. So a nonpartisan commission really helped facilitate the, the blue wave here. And then third is we've really been a big tent party and we focused on bread and butter issues and kitchen table issues for families, you know, and as a result, we all win. What I'm seeing in there, you know, the caucus elections, we're going to have our first African-American Speaker of the House. We're going to have our first woman majority leader of either party in the Senate. We elected an out lesbian uh, as attorney general in 2020. And so diversity is part of the Democratic brand. And it's happening naturally. And it happens because our party really cares about everyone and people see themselves in that party. It's, it's huge victories for Arab Americans, for Muslim Americans, for people of color, for African Americans, Asian Americans, and uh, LGBTQ folks. And so a lot of really good things happening in Michigan. We're really excited about what the next two years will bring with a d- Democratic majorities uh, in the legislature and, and the governor's office. Thanks so much for being with us, Steve. It was really helpful. Thank you, Steve. It's fun to look at Michigan and see such good news in the heartland. All right. We are so happy now to be joined by a New Deal leader, Nemil Kulkarni from Kentucky. As Ryan mentioned at the top, we're super interested and excited to have you here to talk to us a little bit about what may have surprised a lot of voters, uh, national voters on election night with Kentucky defeating the abortion ban, second in line after Kansas. And for some people, that was a surprise. So we're excited to have you kind of here telling us what you saw and what happened and what this means. So absolutely. Yeah. Congratulations first. And thank you. Thank you. No, thank the voters of Kentucky. Honestly, I mean, we were on pins and needles as well. You know, a lot of polling showed that there was not this majority of support in Kentucky. But one of the things that was a little different from the Kansas Amendment, which was a lot longer, where it was a lot more language on the ballot, Kentucky's was one sentence long. It basically said nothing in the Constitution shall guarantee a right to abortion or use taxpayer money to fund abortion. So that last little bit was put on there to confuse people, because a lot of people might say, well, I I don't want my taxpayer money going for someone else's abortion procedure. But of course, that's not what happens now. Anyway, there's it's prohibited. So there was a lot of misleading information that was being put out there by the yes camp. But fundamentally, what it boiled down to is that Kentucky's a red state. Kentucky's a pro-life state. But this this went too far. This particular language went too far because it did not have any exceptions, especially for rape and incest, life of the mother, that kind of thing. And so and it was throwing a lot of chaos into medical in the lives of medical practitioners. What is, you know, our liability? Is this legal? Is that legal? You saw a lot of confusion in terms of pharmacists prescribing certain medications that may be used in the course of, you know, an abortion or not. I mean, it's used for different things, but there was just a a period of time when there was a lot of chaos. So it was about 52% to 47%, I think was the final tally. And so what we can see is while it was, and that was, I think, about online with the polling that was on, on, I think, both sides. So misinformation was used a lot because they knew the numbers just weren't there. But Kentucky, I think, you know, made it clear as did Kansas, that restricting all access to abortion is just not something people are prepared to accept with no exceptions, with no nuance, no sort of leeway for life 
as it happens and all the complications that ensue. So I'm I'm thrilled. I think there was a lot of hope, but also a lot of trepidation in terms of what the voters would actually do and turn out, frankly. You know, we had parts of the state that endured a lot of flooding, that the polling locations weren't open. People weren't in their own homes, especially in eastern Kentucky. And we were just very concerned about turnout, about what the information was that was being provided. But ultimately, I think reason prevailed. And I'm very thankful to the voters of Kentucky for that. Yeah, I'm going to let Ryan jump in. Can I I ask one quick follow-up question, Ryan, which is, do you have a sense yet? I know it's early days, but how the vote played out across the country. I mean, I think that was one of the surprising things for people about the Kansas amendment was that it was overwhelmingly I forget which way, supported or not supported, whichever way it went in rural areas as well as as urban areas. Do you have any sense of like how the vote was distributed at all? I don't. I think they're still looking at that level data because, again, the reporting is slow from some areas. I will take a look. But I know that the support for the no campaign was everywhere. So they were, you know, providing that information and having campaign offices, having canvassers and ads and everything like that all throughout Kentucky. I cannot say with any certainty that the vote distribution was equal. I'm sure it wasn't just because concentrations in Louisville and Lexington considered the more urban areas, I'm sure were a lot more overwhelming than they would be in other parts of the state. But there are a lot of pockets, especially around college towns, where I bet that's where the concentrations are going to be in terms of the strongest support against the ban. Neva, I'd like to ask, we were talking about this a little bit, Debbie and I, about how one of the lessons of this election may be that voters are able to deal with complexity and nuance in a way that maybe the national media doesn't want to give them credit for. Kentucky is a pro-life state. How, How did you have the conversations around this issue that gave voters the room to not see it as a black and white issue, but actually one where they could look at the details and worry about the nuance. Yeah, I mean, I know for my part, I think I had one of the first kind of public panels and have had several just information sessions since then about just with with physicians on the panel, right? So actual medical providers, people in healthcare, nurses, that kind of thing, where we discuss the impact. So kind of where the rubber met the road was what is the practical impact of this one sentence amendment to the state constitution? And it was very vague. I mean, it's very simple and it's very vague because it does not answer any of the questions when it comes to impact. So I think the room that was given to voters was really just They had their own questions, just very practical questions. If I go to my doctor and I'm, you know, and this has happened, right? We've heard of cases where medications given to menopausal women could be used in medication abortions. And so they weren't being prescribed or they weren't being dispensed. And so these are questions that people had. I had a young woman who had experienced a miscarriage for a very wanted pregnancy very early on, and she had trouble getting medication that she needed for very routine, something that would have been very routine where the doctor had to intervene, insurance companies, pharmacists, there was just confusion. And so when people hear about just in your life, how is this going to interfere? That gave them room to ask some just basic questions that could not be answered, frankly. There were no good answers. And so I think people realized that this was more of a it was less governing and more politics. And another follow-up question to that is, as you mentioned, did mobilize voters who may may have otherwise not paid attention or turned out for a midterm election. What do you see as the long-term political consequences for Kentucky of this coalition or energy that may have been created by opposing this ballot measure? Yeah, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, in Kentucky, we passed an omnibus kind of anti-abortion bill this last session. It was House Bill 3 that is in court right now. So this amendment failing really just means that we retain the right to sue. So we can retain the right to challenge these bills, these legislations and these policies on the basis of the Kentucky Constitution. That particular legal challenge is going to be heard by the Supreme Court in Kentucky on November 15th, I believe. So we will still be working against kind of restricting access to abortion. That's not going to stop. All this does is kind of 
keep allow us to keep challenging the constitutionality of some of these measures. Our attorney general put out a statement immediately like this was disappointing that he's going to continue challenging and upholding sort of pro-life legislation and working to make sure that we basically restrict all abortion access in Kentucky. So one of the the things that we will not necessarily have moving forward is the team from Kansas, which is who kind of led with their experience and all of the lessons learned from their campaign. So of course, they're going back home and we thank them for all of their hard work. But we did have a lot of coalition building that went on with a lot of different partners. And I think it also brought to the forefront the impact on Black and Brown women, frankly. The Black, especially rate of like maternal mortality is terrible in Kentucky. And so it brought up all of those issues and those organizations. So it kind of expanded the coalition of people that will be fighting for reproductive rights generally in Kentucky. And I hope that stays because I'm expecting even more. I don't know how many more anti-abortion bills you can fit into <laughs> into Kentucky, but they're going to keep trying. So we will have to be vigilant, I guess, is the takeaway that this isn't going to just automatically give anyone more access to reproductive rights than already exists, but we will have to keep fighting using our constitution, you know, as much as possible in the future. As we really quick follow up on that, Nima, just totally out of curiosity is does, do you think people understood that when they voted or are they going to be surprised? Do you think that the people who voted against the ban in the constitution are going to think that that settled the question in Kentucky? Or are they going to be surprised by all this legislation or is that really kind of understood? Do you think? No, I don't. I, I think people will be surprised. I think that there was a lot of focus given on the importance of voting no, right? So that was the priority, just making sure people need to vote no on Amendment 2. And so, again, a lot of nuances lost because you can't necessarily explain longer term consequences or the longer term impact of this. I think that is a job now and an issue that it's for as policymakers, as advocates, activists, we're going to have to do that educating. Super interesting. Something to watch going forward for sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the podcast today, but more importantly, for being out there on the front lines and fighting this fight for the people of your state and then providing a model, because I think you're right. These, this fight is not it's far from over and will continue, but a, a win in Kentucky is a good sign for, for people across the country who want to want to ensure that there's choice and good, adequate access to health care. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, we're very excited about that and ready for the fight ahead. Thank you all for having me. Thanks so much. It was great to see you. Good to see you. Bye. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.